Thanks for that reading, Mal. Um, You might recall that we looked at the first half of this story last week and I encouraged you for homework to read the second half and I thought that it would bear some more scrutiny to look at it again this morning and particularly what happened after uh, Jesus made those controversial that controversial statement, today this word has been fulfilled in your hearing. Um, this strikes me as an extraordinary story in a number of ways because, number one, Jesus seems to deliberately stir up his audience. It reads as though Jesus is looking for a fight. It's not the way we normally think about him. Um, and just as inexplicable is the fact that as things really come to a climax, Jesus just walks away from it. Another very strange thing. But let's, let's think about what happens here. Initially, everyone is speaking well of him. So Jesus says these words, they're wondering at the gracious words which are falling from his lips, and then they started saying, is this not Joseph's son? So they're starting to think, hang on a minute, Who is this guy and what is this claim that he's making? It all sounds pretty good at first. Release to the captives, sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed. Who could argue with it? That kind of stuff. And then it's like, hasn't Joseph and Mary's boy grown up and become quite the orator? Good on him. And then people start going, hang on a minute. Do you know about the phases of forming community? There's a polite phase at the beginning where when we first meet, it's kind of strategic. We are very polite to one another. There's certain behavioural protocols that generally we follow. And it's based on the fact that we don't know anything about the other people. So, you know, we put out our hands to shake. We say polite things. We have little rituals that we go through. Hello, who are you? What do you do? Where are you from? Like we're just getting bits and pieces of information. And all of that is... um, quite good. When you get beyond politeness and we start to realise that the people we know are not the people we thought we knew, actually some of them are quite strange and some of them behave in ways we don't understand and some of them hold beliefs that how could they possibly believe that? And all sorts of things start to become apparent as we get past the polite stage and we go into a bit of a chaos stage. And if you keep going then you actually get to a much deeper community stage where we see all the various different things that are going on for each other, not all of it, but a lot more of it, and we still accept each other. And that's real community, when we actually see each other for who we are, realise that we're very different to one another, and continue to love each other regardless. That's where community comes in. So they started off in the polite stage, oh, isn't it lovely, oh, very good, and then got to the chaos stage very quickly. If only it stopped at the nice stage. No. Jesus starts to provoke his audience. Why would he do that? It's as though uh, he said out loud what they were all thinking because they're starting to think, today this scripture is fulfilled in our hearing. Hang on a minute. How? How are you fulfilling this? Are you going to do some miracles for us? You're going to do some some stuff? And so he says, you're going to say to me, physician, heal yourself, do the miracles here that we've heard about you doing in Capernaum, etc., etc. That's a big claim you've made. Prove it. 
essentially. The people want to see what's really going on. But Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? He says, uh, well, I'm not going to do any miracles for you today and here's why. He does so by recalling two of Israel's most important prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Very early on in the history of the kingdom of Israel, they were giants of God's word. And so much so that still today Jews set a table for Elijah at the Passover because they expect him to come before Messiah shows up. He was a precursor to Messiah and Elisha was Elijah's successor. So these are very big name prophets in Israel. And Jesus wanted, them, wanted his audience to have a very clear appreciation of what he was saying. And while that reference to Elijah and Elisha might be a little bit obscure to us, and I'll explain it to you in a minute, it clearly was not obscure to the people he was speaking to. They got very upset, and this is why. Because to that group who knew their scriptures, they knew that Elijah and Elisha represented God's faithfulness in a context of quite dire unfaithfulness in the time. There was nearly universal compromise in Israel when Elijah and Elisha were out doing their work. And at the time, Israel was being threatened by outside forces, invading armies and so forth, but it was really the cultural, religious and spiritual degeneration that was the biting and more important issue at the time of these two prophets. And if you read their stories, it's in the first book of Kings, look around chapter 19, there's some good stuff there. You read of men who were ostracised most places they went. Uh, the honor, they didn't receive the honour accorded to them at the time. And Jesus says, so remember that there were lots of widows back in the day, but Elijah went out to Zarephath in Sidon. Now Sidon was a little area that the, um, one of the tribes was supposed to occupy and take over and they were never able to do it. It always stayed outside of Israel. So it's almost salt in the wound. Here's this place just outside of Israel. That's where Elijah went to do his miracles, not amongst his own people. And Elisha, Elisha, there were so many lepers around at the time. Who did Elisha heal? He healed Naaman, who was the servant of the king of Ammon. And he's the enemy. Why didn't he do miracles amongst his own people? These two great uh, greats in Israel's history did miracles as God directed them to and not at the whim of the people. They weren't just pleasing people, they did it with purpose and very deliberately to make a point about the faithfulness and the unfaithfulness of the people. So uh, that became very pointed. An important aspect of the remarkableness of Elijah and Elisha is just how their faithfulness stood against the prevailing forces of their day. Anyone who has stood against a group of neighbours or friends might appreciate how extraordinary this faithfulness is. The persuasive power of the people around us is magnified exponentially when there seems to be unanimous agreement in the nation. Um, If you 
looking to testimony from everyday ordinary Germans at the time when Nazism came uh, on the rise in Germany, you can hear them saying it was very difficult to make an alternative choice. There was really only one choice to make, be part of the community or not be part of the community. The community was all going in one direction. Uh, Virtually all opposition had been quashed. Censorship and propaganda meant no countervailing narrative was available. And so the vast majority of people who weren't bad people, they weren't evil people, they were like you and they were like me, and they just went along with their community. And this is why Elijah and Elisha are so remarkable, because they didn't. Um, We see in 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah flees and hides in a cave after he's done this remarkable demonstration of God's power. He runs away and there he calls out to God and he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword and I alone am left and they seek my life to take it away. So he, was, he really felt utterly alone against the whole nation that had abandoned God and um, there was about 7,000 who'd been faithful, we find out, and God tells him that and says, you know, buck up, off you go and get on with it sort of thing. By invoking this story, Jesus is making it really clear that the people are the unfaithful people and he's not going to do any miracles for them today. At one level it makes perfect sense they got as upset as they did. How would you like that? (laughs) Someone coming in. It's not surprising they arced up in the way they did. So that that begged the question for me, what is the difference between self-righteousness and true righteousness? How do we know the difference? What do they look like? And I think one part of it is if we look at intransigence versus engagement. The people, sorry, the people not for a moment countenanced the possibility that Jesus' implication was justified. They didn't, they didn't think, oh, maybe he has a point there. Not for a moment did they think that. They did not want to hear it, not for a second. They didn't question that they were in the right They would not engage the matter at all. They had no curiosity about it. They repudiated the implication. It was a slight on their sense of their own good name. And the person who is self-righteous is very fragile in their sense of rightness because it's based in themselves. And that's just a fragile platform. If it's true righteousness, if it's righteousness from God, then... That's far more robust. You don't need to be defensive. You can explore issues and inquire and see what's going on and know that it doesn't threaten your standing, your righteousness. The next thing is silencing versus listening. We tend to want to silence that which we cannot bear. For whatever reason, it might threaten to overwhelm us or make us uncomfortable or a whole range of things, but we feel a need to push that... that voice away or silence it in some way. I remember a few years ago I was on a bus and there was a woman sitting not far from me and she was talking quite audibly, incessantly to herself. 
It was, it was quite a thing to see. She was just chatting away to herself. And it'd be easy to say, well, she was just mad. But I, I watched her for quite a while, sort of surreptitiously. Didn't want to be too awkward about it. But I found it really fascinating. And it occurred to me that it seemed like, and I have no way of proving this, but it seemed like she was talking in order to silence other voices in her head. She just wanted to keep making a noise so that she could control the narrative of what was going on for her. She had to voice out loud what she wanted to think about because it was too difficult to think it in her head. There was too many other voices. It was a way of silencing some things and allowing other things to come to the fore. And it occurred to me too, as I thought about that, you know, we do that in all sorts of subtle ways. I I know some of us get really, really busy sometimes and getting busy is actually a way of occupying yourself sometimes so that you don't have to think about things you don't want to think about. I I know that that works for me, (laughs) that uh, it's a really good way of distracting yourself. It's a way of silencing certain things. Now, I'm not saying that's always a bad thing to do, but it's really interesting to think about what we allow ourselves to listen to and what we silence. Self-righteousness needs to silence contrary voices. They are seen as a threat because self-righteousness is fundamentally fragile. It is sustained by the force of our own will. Self-righteousness, whereas God's righteousness is given to us, it's sustained by God. We are clothed in it and held by God's righteousness, so we do not need to hold it together, as it were. And that means it's a more secure place, and that means we can listen, because the threat isn't to our righteousness, it's not to our standing, if you know what I mean. Jesus' hometown crowd wanted to silence what he was saying. He threatened them. He didn't want to, they didn't want to just shush Jesus, they wanted to shut him down permanently, forever. That's a fairly extreme reaction I give you. The third thing I would highlight is the direction of our energy, outward violence versus inward discipline and responsibility. It's another telltale sign, I think, that distinguishes true righteousness from self-righteousness. It's the direction of our controlling energies, if you like. Self-righteousness has it centred in self, so it seeks to exert control over the outward world to protect that fragile sense of self. True righteousness is centred in God, so it exerts its energy inwardly to control the self in keeping with the nature of God. Not from fear of rejection, but in the conviction that the nature of God is the best way to do life. And so we want to be conformed to that pattern, as it were. I mean, it's a fascinating part of this story, that conclusion. Passing through their midst, Jesus went on his way. I don't know about you, I have that... Have you seen those cartoons where everybody jumps on and there's a big pile of people and it's usually Bugs Bunny who was in the middle of it and he kind of wriggles out and dusts himself down and walks away and they're all still fighting? There's a profound truth in that. There's a profound truth in that because if you think about the behaviour of a mob, it's often substantially a matter of blind rage. And we use the word blind rage on purpose because we are blinded by rage at times. A group that is consumed by its reaction of anger. It does nothing calculated or deliberate. It's almost like 
the thing is happening to them. Like a physical body will vomit, I don't, don't want to make you remember vomiting, but when you vomit, you're, you're not doing it, it's being done to you. Your body is convulsing in a way to get something out. And this is almost like this social equivalent of that. A series of events that nobody's in control of. It's just reaction upon reaction and something is happening and they've got to get this guy out of here. We've got to shut him down. We don't want to hear this stuff. That's so wrong. We've got to stop it and that kind of business. And it's almost as though it's happening to them rather than them doing it. I think that's the kind of thing we see happening here. I don't know if you heard last weekend, Australia Day clashes in Melbourne, that kind of stuff different groups representing different ideas about Australia Day and this kind of stuff. And uh, one group of people grabbed an individual and dragged him to the ground and dragged him along the road, I think because he was wearing a particular flag or, or this kind of thing. These people didn't know each other. I, I would want, they'd never met, they knew nothing about each other except one little symbolic thing and they were possessed of a reaction which they would never do on their own. They would never do if they'd given a few moments to think about it. It was like something overwhelmed them and this blind rage takes on. And Jesus was neither angry nor fearful. This is the best position from which to see. He was not blinded. He could see the dynamics taking place. And I, I believe that he could have read the mob and seen what they were doing and worked out the best course of action and taken it and walked through their midst as they were consumed with their blind rage. He saw his opportunity and he slipped away. There's some lovely blokes, eh? We know them. <laughs> See, self-righteousness actually comes to us naturally. None of us are a stranger to these things. It's born of our legitimate need to feel that we are acceptable. That's perfectly understandable. It is inherently fragile and we feel compelled to protect our fragile status. That's self-righteousness. I know about that. I warrant you do too. But true righteousness, righteousness that comes from God, is not dependent on our own efforts. So it's marked, it can be marked, it should be marked by an engagement rather than a recalcitrance, a listening rather than a silencing and a self-discipline rather than violence towards others. That is the stuff of true friendship. And Jesus says to us, you are my friends. So let us live as friends of Jesus and friends to one another and friends to our community and friends to this world that we might be the transforming people to make life lifier. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your amazing grace that you bestow upon us righteousness a righteousness that is in you so it is so robust we cannot shake it off. It is not fragile. It is not at risk. Thank you that we can stand in that and live from that place and so engage and listen 
and be self-disciplined and bring change to ourselves, in our key relationships, in our community and in our world. To the glory of your name. Amen.